This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content you've come to expect. Today, our guest is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and best-selling author, Layla Lalamy. We spoke with her via Zoom in October of 2020 about her newest book, Conditional Citizens, by publisher Pantheon Books. Layla Lalamy is a naturalized U.S. citizen of Arab descent born in Morocco. The Professor of Linguistics' pathway to citizenship lasted from 1992 to 2000, and she experienced a wide range of contradictions along the way. She notes in Conditional Citizens that she realized while she had to declare herself as ethnically white on official paperwork, she didn't see Arabs existing the same way as other white people in the real world. Legal whiteness does not mean the same thing as cultural or social whiteness. People don't necessarily treat Arabs as white in American society. So if you look at popular Hollywood portrayals, it's, you know, as victims or as villains. If you look at how the government, you see higher levels of surveillance. So things get complicated around whiteness and citizenship. And in her memoir that consists of essays she's written over the years, she breaks down how accidents of birth, such as national origin, race, or gender, play a large role in shaping the experience of what it means to be American to this day. We'll learn more about this book, other bestsellers, and the life of professor and writer Layla Lalami on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Anna Crossland. Layla, I wish we'd be able to be hosting you in person today, but thank you for joining us virtually. Thank you so much for having me. Today we'll be chatting with uh, Layla about her most recent book, Conditional Citizens on Belonging in America. The book is a series of nonfiction essays arranged by eight themes, allegiance, faith, borders, assimilation, tribe, caste, inheritance, and last but not least, do not despair of this country. The essays are a fascinating mix of personal anecdotes deftly woven together with historical and current facts. Through them, Layla's makes a case that, uh, as she states, there's a shocking difference between the promise of citizenship and the reality. So Layla, let's proceed with a few questions. First of all, why do you use the term conditional citizens? Who, who are they? So conditional citizens, uh, as I explain in the book, are people whose access to the rights, liberties, and protections of citizenship is curtailed by accidents of birth, like race or gender or social class or national origin. 
Within American society, people's access to to something as simple and as basic as the right to vote oftentimes is curtailed by, as I mentioned, an accident of birth such as race. Now, this isn't to say that there are laws that say that people of a certain race can't vote, but it is to say that the way in which access to this right is limited has the same effect as if it were a restriction based on race. So, for example, with uh, voter ID laws, which disproportionately affect uh, Black people and people of color, or the closure of polling stations, or the fact that there are fewer ballot boxes. All of these make are essentially barriers to voting that have the effect that for certain people of particular races, it's not, the right to vote is not guaranteed. You talked a little bit about some of the ways in which um, individuals, whether they're naturalized citizens or native-born citizens, in fact, may face similar patterns of of discrimination. In what areas might they diverge a bit? Um, Might there be some issues that are unique to people who are are foreign-born and therefore naturalized citizens? Well, one of the things that naturalized citizens face periodically is this pressure to prove their allegiance to the country through silence and acquiescence, meaning that as long as you have gratitude for America and believe in the national sort of myths of the American dream and hard work and all of that, everything is fine. But if you express dissent with what the government is doing, then you might be told to go back to your country. And we have seen this, for example, with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who has been repeatedly told to go back to her country because she disagreed with the President of the United States. Um, But one doesn't necessarily need to be naturalized to see that kind of reaction. You also see it with people who are native-born. Essentially, Citizenship is something that is a kind of coincidence. The fact that a person is born in this country or in another country is what gives them citizenship within that this country or that country. And that coincidence ends up giving people access to certain rights or denials of certain rights. So, for example, if a person is born in say, for example, um, North Korea, they might not have access to freedom of movement, not have the ability to move about out of the country as they please. Or if they are born in uh, Saudi Arabia, they might not have access to freedom of religion. Or if they are born in, I don't know, uh, Peru, they might not have access to abortion. The opposite of that is if you're born in, for example, a place like Finland, you might have access to social rights like free healthcare. So a lot of what uh, determines our access to a number of these rights is really an accident of birth. And here in the United States, even though everybody is technically equally protected by the Constitution of the United States, what we in fact see is also a certain amount of curtailing of rights based on accidents of births, as I mentioned. 
You spend um, a sizable part of the book talking about race, in fact, and, and how race can affect our lives, whether we are, in fact, foreign-born and naturalized citizens or whether we are, are native-born. One of the discussions that I, I found very interesting has to do with the question of, of Middle Easterners and why, in fact, on the racial categories in this country, they end up being listed as white. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that uh, that would be a, a discussion that the, the listeners might, might be very interested in hearing more about. Well, I think that the racial categories that exist in the United States on the forms that we all have to fill out when we seek employment or when we apply for uh, different things, there there's always a racial component to the forms. And typically there are four or five or six categories. Those categories are specifically designed with American history in mind. So the category of white is defined in a certain way and the category category of black is defined a certain way and all of that. And and those definitions depend on a combination of national origin, you know, where the ancestry, where we trace our ancestry, and also on skin color, on a combination of those things. And the first time I remember when I was a foreign student and I had I was freshly arrived and I supported myself by teaching French and Arabic at the University of Southern California. And I had to fill out, you know, a form and I didn't know. I was very much confused by the categories on offer and really didn't know whether I should check the white box or the black box or both boxes. I was very confused because Morocco, of course, is where I was born, is in Africa. The categories made mention of Africa, but then it split it into North Africa, which would go with the Caucasian category, and then the rest of Africa was supposed to go under black. And things are not as simple in in real life, because even within Morocco, people identify as either Arab or they identify as Amazigh. It's sort of an ethnic category, and it can go over different kinds of skin color. So you can be Arab and you can be white, but you can be Arab and you can be black. And what the category basically said is if you're from North Africa, you're going to get put into the white category. And so I was really mystified by that, and it didn't make sense to me until I started to look into the history of how Arabs came to be white. And it just was a very, very interesting history to it in the United States. So originally, they were not considered white. The only people who were considered white were people with ancestry in Europe. Uh, And of course, whiteness was a condition for access to citizenship. Citizenship was open only to people who were immigrants who were white. So everybody else had to, everybody had to petition and make a case to the court. And then the court would decide whether you you could become um, a citizen based on whether you were white or not. And so there are all kinds of cases where people are arguing about whether they should be counted as white or not. So uh, there's a very famous case uh, for the case of Bhagat Singh Dind, who was actually South Asian, but he made the case that he was Caucasian and he was Aryan and therefore white by any definition of the term where he was denied because he was Asian. And then in the case of Arabs, they were some Arabs are close to, are trace their ancestry to, to, to 
what is considered Asia, and Asians did not have access to the citizenship until there were all kinds of restrictions on Asians for citizenship. And so the court really ended up making decisions based on groups of people. So the earliest Arab immigrants who came in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, were from Syria and Lebanon. Many of them were Christians, so a lot of them were allowed to become citizens, and therefore the courts decided that they were white. But then when other immigrants started coming from other parts of the Arab world, for example, Yemen, then the court would see the, the applicant and see that the person was either a dark brown or black and then deny citizenship. So it was, you know, some people got to become citizens, others as a class were denied citizenship. So Arabs went from being counted as white to being counted as non-white to again being counted as white by the, 19, the late 1940s. Uh, and so what's interesting about that is that how whiteness was defined was not simply a matter of geographic origin or skin color, but very much also a political decision about what parts of the world got to count as white or not. And so Arabs now, for the moment, are legally considered white, meaning that when you fill the forms, they, if you put that you are from, a, even if you put other and you put, you know, Morocco or whatever, you get counted by the census as white. But legal whiteness does not mean the same thing as cultural or social whiteness. So people don't necessarily treat Arabs as white in American society. And we know this because of the way in which, as a class, they are portrayed in a particular way in media. So if you look at popular Hollywood portrayals, it's, you know, as victims or as villains. If you look at how the government even treats Arabs as a class, you see higher levels of surveillance. You know, so there's all kinds of things that apply to Arabs, like, for example, special registration after the 9-11 attacks. Arab men had to uh, register with INS. Um, so there, there, there is a certain amount of both government and social behavior that indicates that Arabs are not considered white, even if legally they are considered white. So things get complicated around oh, they do. whiteness and citizenship. <laughs> well, and it's even um, a greater challenge these days for refugees, for instance, who are arriving in this country who are from Arab countries because since they're considered white, for instance, they don't qualify as minority-owned businesses or as disadvantaged businesses or for any of the other assistance that's in the country, that, in fact, because of the discrimination you're just talking about, they feel in some ways even more harshly than, than other populations and other minorities. And so it's a, it's a, it's a twisted, twisted kind of tangle of, of, of weeds there um, um, in total. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another part of the book that I thought was really interesting was your section on borders when you talked about the Mexican-American border itself uh, and how border was really more than simply the physical border uh, between Mexico and the United States, but that it was much more widespread because of this checkpoint system. And because of it, it really challenged um, the fragility of the concept of citizenship uh, itself for, for everyone. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So this was something that I was just really surprised to discover a few years ago. And by far, it is the aspect of the American border system that most surprises my readers when I talk about it. A few years ago, I was traveling to go to a writing residency in Texas, in Marfa, Texas. And on the way there, so after we landed in El Paso, we took a car and we were driving there. And on the Interstate 10, uh, seemingly in the middle of, of nowhere, we came across a border checkpoint, even though we weren't anywhere near the border. And, uh, you know, so it's a bit, you know, surprising and potentially even frightening because there's, you know, dogs and there's armed men in green uniforms. And so they approached their car and they asked us, are you U.S. citizens? And, you know, we said yes. And then we were let go. And it was really interesting because the border agent basic or the border patrol agent essentially has the right to make a determination based on your answer. If the border agent says, are you a U.S. citizen? And you say yes, they can decide that they believe you, in which case you're on your way, or they can decide based on how you look or how you sound that they don't actually believe you and then they want proof. Now, most of us don't go around carrying birth certificates or passports with us. And so what that means is that the agent can actually pull you aside, demand that you show proof. If you don't have proof, ask that you will get it. I mean, so each year people actually do get caught uh, that are citizens in these border checkpoints and they have to go into immigration detention, which is not a place that anybody wants to end up. And and so I, I became curious and I started to look into border checkpoints. And as it turns out, there's a huge network of them, uh, more than 100, between, anywhere between 100 and 200. And these are placed within 100 miles of land and sea borders in the United States. So all along the border with Mexico, the border with Canada, the oceans, and also the Great Lakes. So 100 miles from all this. And what this means in actuality is that the vast majority of Americans, as many as 200 million, actually live in what is considered the 100-mile border zone. And this is something that grew out of a regulation from 1952 by the Department of Justice that basically allowed Border Patrol the right to look for undocumented people who were crossing the border. It started out at 25 miles, but then it was expanded to 100 miles, which is a massive amount of territory over which the they can set up checkpoints and ask. And so the question then becomes, why is it that the country that is so passionate about personal freedom and liberty has a network of essentially militarized checkpoints, uh, so many of them around the country? And it really goes to this notion of how we police the border who gets to come in and who gets to come out and who has freedom of movement and who is liable to be asked periodically to show paperwork, even though they are citizens. And a few years ago, there was a survey done near the border in Mexico, and it was found that most of the people that do get pulled aside because <laughs> they get asked and they get harassed are people who are of uh, Latinos or Latina origin, right? Uh, that's who the agents tend to kind of demand to, to have their paperwork with them. So this is what I mean when I talk about uh, conditional citizenship, which is that your freedom, in this case, the freedom to move about, becomes something that can be taken away from you at any moment because of accidents of birth like national origin. 
Coming up, our guest Layla Lalami will talk about how writing her previous work of fiction led her to put together her most recent book, Conditional Citizens. I was working on my novel, The Other Americans, and when I was done with the novel, I decided that I would sort of expand this on this idea of conditional citizenship and kind of like broaden it and think about it from multiple different lenses. And one of the things that I noticed is how much everything that I've noticed or experienced also connects me to the experiences of others. So for example, this idea that people of color have to show allegiance and if they don't, that somehow they are traitors. We'll hear more about her previous work and how she sees that the relevance of her work is still high given the racial reckoning in the United States during the summer of 2020 when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. I was very interested in your section where you talked about gender and about how being female has also, in so many ways, makes you a conditional citizen. And um, you have personal experiences and then also your observations. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about that essay as well? Yeah. So one of the, I mean, of course, women would fall under this definition of conditional citizenship, because first of all, from the founding of the nation to pretty much almost 1965, women of all racial backgrounds in this country did not have access to many rights, including the right to vote. So yes, the 19th Amendment was passed, but it, it really only applied to white women. Women, women of other backgrounds didn't have the right uh, to vote or didn't have access to the vote. And so it really is only with the passing of the Civil Rights Act that they had to vote. So I can't imagine of a more obvious sign of conditional citizenship than the fact that you don't have the right to vote. But also women have these... Um, the question of our uh, bodily integrity and our uh, the ways in which we move about in the workplace and how whether we are protected by law or not and in the in the essay I talk about the issue of sexual harassment and how it is treated in workplaces yes there are systems in place like having human resource departments but oftentimes what ends up happening is that these human resource departments really are worried about the interests of the company or the interests of the people the employer not necessarily the interests of the employee and I connect this really to how women have a really hard time uh, being believed when they report sexual harassment. And this can happen not just in the workplace, but also in the political arena. And we've seen this with the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, where Christine Blasey Ford brought her case essentially to the nation, and we all know how that ended up. And so I think that just in general, citizens who are women just have a a more difficult time proving their cases of sexual harassment, which makes it so much harder to deal with the issue. You completed this book prior to the killings this spring of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and others, which resulted in the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was wondering as I read the book, if you were completing it now, would there be anything additional that you would want to say or add to your essays, your book in, in essence? 
That's a really good question. There is a chapter in which I talk about race and how access to certain rights is not equal depending on race. And I talk a lot about voting, but I also talk about how encounters between a citizen and agents of the state is something that ordinarily is supposed to be anonymous. You're all supposed to be treated the same, but in reality, it is something where race can play a huge part and it can lead to violence. So just being pulled aside for a routine traffic check, that is more likely to end up in violence if the person is African-American. So this was something that I very much was including in the book, but I didn't have a huge section on it, but it was included in the book. If the book had been published now, of course, it would be something that I would write about at greater greater length because of the fact that there is this sort of movement that we're now seeing, this reinvigoration of the movement. I think this is one of the issues of writing books is that they are written within the perspective of their time uh, and that when events change, then of course you change and then the book also changes. Uh, Racism has been a part of U.S. history and racist violence at the hands of police has also been part of U.S. history. Something that I gesture to in the book and I include in the book, even if it doesn't specifically mention George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. I think one of the things too that happened after the book uh, was published is the fact that the COVID pandemic erupted and a number of these sort of like fault lines in American societies actually deepened and make the case for some of what I talk about in the book. So I think it often happens that when you write something that events can sometimes overtake it. Yeah. yeah. You've raised some really tough issues in these in these essays and Are there steps that you might suggest that our viewers take if they want to be able to begin the changes that are so important and and some of which you highlight in your book? Yeah, I mean, I think that is what the final chapter is about. I didn't, I knew that in talking about all the ways in which the citizenship is not uh, experienced in equal measure by all of us, You know, it doesn't protect all of us equally, but there are things that each of us can take in order to make it a more equal system. Part of the reason why it's unequal is that it started out in a way that was unequal at the founding of the nation, right? Because citizenship was restricted to free white persons. And even though it has been reformed over slowly over a period of 200 years, some of these inequities are still existent in the system. And one of the things that we can do is to find out what it is about each of us, like what is our special talent and connect that to the fight for justice. One of the things that is possible to do is to help people regain their voting rights. In the United States, as many as 2.3 million at any one time are incarcerated and end up losing their voting rights uh, And even when they've served their time. Now in Florida, the voters of Florida decided to restore voting rights to people through Amendment 4, I believe it was called. 
And this was such a wonderful development and, you know, it's widening access of voting rights, but the legislature ended up imposing essentially the, the equivalent of a poll tax where basically required these people to repay court costs and wouldn't tell them how much the court costs were, by the way. But anyway, so the point is, is that one of the things that we can do is, you know, donate to the fund to help pay people's court costs so that they regain voting rights. And that's a form of activism, you know, basically helping someone regain their rights. Another thing that one can take, you know, it, it just depends on what your special talent is. If you are somebody who has special teaching talents. One of the biggest problems in the country is unequal outcomes in schools. And this has to do oftentimes with social class, because parents who have jobs that enable them to have one parent at home, or even if it's two parents, but they have more free time, they're able to help their kids after school, they're able to help them with homework and provide tutoring, or they're able to even uh, do things like enrolling their kids in preschool, which is so important for childhood development. Not everybody has that. And so if you have the kind of talent where you can help kids, especially in the early years, which is when a lot of that delay starts taking place, that can be a fantastic way of helping young people become the kind of equal citizens we want them to be. So it's just, it just depends what a person's talent is. You know, I was talking earlier today to somebody who was canvassing to help uh, register people to vote. You know, there's just, there's just so much that people can do. And it really has to do with uh, your special talent, how much time you have, uh, and, and how much you want to be involved. Could you share a little with the audience about your own story and why you felt compelled at this point in your life to write Conditional Citizens? Yeah, so I started thinking about this book in July 2016. I was watching the Democratic National Convention and a couple from Virginia came to speak on behalf of the nominee, the Democratic nominee, and they eulogized their son, who was a captain in the United States Army, who had died in combat, or rather he had died trying to save his fellow soldiers from a terrorist attack. And they also were essentially castigating the Republican nominee for his Muslim ban. And it was such an electrifying moment when Mr. Khan pulled out his pocket copy of the Constitution. But the week later, surrogates for the Trump campaign were attacking him as basically as somebody who was a stooge for the Muslim Brotherhood. They said that he wasn't letting his wife speak. They even implied that maybe his son had been a stealth jihadist. I and mean, it was very, very ugly. And so I wrote a column for The Nation magazine. I'm a regular contributor there. And I wrote a column called Conditional Citizens. And it's basically talking about this dynamic for naturalized people, but also more broadly for people of color, where you uh, are expected to show your allegiance. And if you don't show gratitude and allegiance, but instead have dissent or disagreement, then there's a lot of like ugliness that comes out of that. You can see it that you don't have to be an immigrant. You can see it even with, for example, football players or basketball players who speak out in, in favor of racial justice and are told that they should be grateful because they're multimillionaires and they shouldn't spend their time advocating for causes that they believe in. So it's kind of the same um, dynamic. And so I wrote that column, but at the time I was working on my novel, The Other Americans. Uh, and 
when I was done with the novel, I decided that I would sort of expand this on this idea of conditional citizenship and kind of like broaden it and think about it from multiple different lenses. It was also coming up on the 20th anniversary of my oath of citizenship, which I took at the Pafona Fairplex in 2000. And it seemed like a nice round number and a good way to look back on 20 years and to see what, what I have learned over the course of 20 years about citizenship, both from my own experience, but also from observing how it was lived and uh, by other people around me. And one of the things that I noticed is how much everything that I've noticed or experienced also connects me to the experiences of others. So for example, this idea that, that people of color have to show allegiance, and if they don't, that somehow they are traitors. And I write about this in the book in the first chapter. This is something that Japanese Americans went through during the Second World War, where basically they were forced to give up their properties, their lands, their homes, and they were put on trains and sent to internment camps. Uh, and they were essentially surveilled by their own government and treated as traitors within their own country. In fact, the place in which I was sworn in, the Pomona Fairplex, I discovered a few years later, served as an assembly center for Japanese Americans. And that was where Japanese Americans in Southern California had to report before they were sent into concentration camps. Now, I remember when I discovered that fact, I was floored by the idea that the government was swearing in new citizens at the site in which people were essentially being treated as non-citizens, as foreigners and as traitors. So there was something about that connection that really made me realize how all of the rights that we have as citizens are really tethered to the rights and well-being of other citizens around us. And so that's why the book looks at things like race and gender and national origins, starting with my experience, but really connecting me to the experiences of others. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts about what your next book or project might be? Um, not yet. And I, I always hesitate to talk about things when I'm still kind of thinking about them. I've been, to be honest, I've just been so distracted by uh, the COVID pandemic because this book was supposed to come out in April and then it got pushed to September. So I'm still doing tour events for it. And of course, with the election coverage, you know, I'm, I'm constantly checking my phone for a recent update. So I just haven't been able to really work in earnest on the next thing. I mean, I have ideas, but I, I haven't yet begun writing. I will look forward to it because it, uh, it'll be a, another uh, great revelation is, uh, you know, uh, for, for myself personally and for the, uh, you know, community at large. Um, thank you so much. So thank you very much. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. That was our guest, Pulitzer Prize finalist and best-selling author, Layla Lalami. We spoke with her via Zoom in October of 2020 about her newest book, Conditional Citizens, by publisher Pantheon Books. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The interviewer for this episode of the program was Anna Crossland. Video editor was Peter Foggy. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. 
The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Ben Smith. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.